Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. The The drama in the Lehman household, my father-in-law's birthday is tomorrow. So we're having him over. His wife is out. Of, my mother-in-law is out of town. So we're having him over for dinner. And, and my wife and I are frantically figuring out how to cook steak, which, you know, you think that we would do, but we don't eat a lot of like large slabs of beef. So like we're asking a friend who's a cook what her input is on, you know, should we like which large slab of beef should we buy in order to save his, you know, classic... I guess, Gen X desire for a large slab of meat on his birthday. Is that a particularly Gen X thing? I don't, it's, it, it, I mean, I eat like a limb is basically my arrangement. Like I don't eat a lot of red meat for no particularly good reason, except that it's expensive. But I think if it is like a, you know, a, a younger boomer, elderly Gen X phenomenon. Well, Charles, <laughs> so, so you eat like a limb, uh, <laughs> He's trying that, the segue. He's trying the segue early. Yeah, yeah, but so so, so you eat like a lib. What like, we're, we're taught that what other pathologies of <laughs> liberalism or at least a particular strain of it are we discussing today? Yeah, I'll, besides I'll, vegetarianism, I'll take that as a segue. We're not talking vegetarianism. We <laughs> may argue that vegetarianism is determined by the topics we're talking about today. Maybe, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. No, no. So today we're talking about the impacts of a particular piece of legislation, the long-run impacts of a particular piece of legislation. The, we wanted to bring in our guest today because she wrote a really interesting paper about how a small change in law has, a, in her argument, a dramatic cultural impact. Um, we're talking particularly about the 1991 Civil Rights Act, which is sort of the less discussed, still important little brother of the, of the you know, the, the big mama Civil Rights Act, 1964 CRA. The, the 91 is sort of the, the first major revision post-64. It was passed under George H.W. Bush, dramatically overhauled the ways in which rights afforded by the 64 CRA, particularly rights against workplace discrimination and harassment, were adjudicated. The Civil Rights Act, you know, we talked about this. I'm really interested in the impacts of the Civil Rights Act. I think you're really interested in the impacts of the Civil Rights Act, the way that our culture has been shaped by it. But, you know, the getting down into the nitty-gritty of the process by which legislation at the macronational level can have long-run cultural con- consequences as a topic of interest for our show. And you know, th- this week our guest argues that sort of a small change in the 91 CRA, again, a really, you know, something that sounds fairly technical, had profound downstream implications for our culture. Her work on the topic, in fact, labels it, quote, the roots of wokeness. So I'm interested, I'm interested to sort of get her to spell out her theory. What's your sort of take on the topic this week? Yeah, so so I think we'll let our, our guests do most of the talking and we'll introduce her in just a minute because it's kind of technical. But I just want to flag kind of one important feature of this argument. So often, you know, when people try to explain why did wokeness take hold, one one big problem with a lot of the conventional explanations is that they don't really tell you why it arose when it did. So, for example, if you argue that the culprit was the 1964 Civil Rights Act, as some have, obvious next question is, well, why did it take almost half a century for anything like, you know, this sort of real great awakening fervor to take hold and be institutionalized, you know, or if it's, you know, the result of secularization or something, you know, same question. Well, why is it only coming into being now? 
what I like about our guest's argument about the 1991 Act is it makes a kind of it's a theory that makes a concrete prediction about when wokeness would arise, presumably following the 90s. And at first, you know, following in the 90s. And sure enough, it's shortly after 1991 that kind of the first wave of political correctness comes along. So there's the, the, the timeline that this causal story predicts, and we'll get to the mechanisms in a moment, it, you know, is the timeline we actually see for wokeness or at least its predecessor. And I think that just keep in mind that should make this argument, you know, if not overwhelmingly plausible to you, then I think certainly something that anyone should take seriously, especially if you're skeptical, because it has a kind of theoretical explanatory virtue that a lot of other arguments in this genre, I think, don't. So, yeah, Charles, I, 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 I broadly agree with that. You know, a lot of the focus of the show is this, again, this idea that uh, big fuzzy ideas, notions, emotional relations things matter much less than the sort of world of structures and incentives. And, you know, I've been a little skeptical. I've argued actually at length in print that sort of the roots of wokeness stretch back to 64 and arguably before it, and that much of it has to do with sort of the ossification of particular institutional structures. But I like our guest's argument because it sort of gives us A, as you said, a, a specific sort of stake in the ground. Here's when this stuff started. B, it identifies sort of financial incentive, a, a pecuniary incentive associated with the emergence of all this. Having sort of set her up so dramatically, I, I, I feel like I should introduce our guest. Um, our guest is Gail Harriet. She's a professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law. Since 2007, Professor Harriet has also served on the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Professor Harriet, welcome to Institutionalized. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I should footnote here that I am not speaking in my official capacity as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights today. I'm speaking as Gail Harriet, and they like me to say that whenever I speak up on anything. I, I I duly duly noted. Yes. So we're gonna we're gonna talk through I guess the details of your argument at some length, but we'd like to start with sort of a provocative direct question. The paper that you wrote that we're discussing today claims it's title to identify the quote roots of wokeness unquote. How much do you really think you found those roots of the current woke phenomenon, whatever that may mean? Well, I would say that like wokeness is not like a carrot with like one big root. There are other roots of wokeness, but I think this one's a significant one. Uh, I think this one counts for a lot. You know, it's not the whole picture. Uh, it's not even, you know, almost the whole picture, but it's a part that needs to be looked at and needs to be thought about. So so let's roll the tape back, start at the beginning. In 1964, Congress passed a Civil Rights Act, arguably sort of when, when people say the Civil Rights Act, they mean the 64 Civil Rights Act. And you're, you focus a lot on changes in Title Seven of the 64 CRA. That's a very technical concept for our listeners. So let's really break it down. What At the beginning, what does Congress say in Title Seven? What is Congress trying to do as it regulates the workplace? What's happening there in, 60, in 1964? Yeah, Title Seven is the part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that covers employment. And it's maybe the most important part today under the law. And it, it bans discrimination based on, on race, color, sex, religion, and national origin. But it had a lighter touch back in those days than it has now. And it instead of, of allowing for damages for things like emotional distress and, you know, instead of allowing for punitive damages, 
It allowed only for lost wages and it allowed for injunctions so that if somebody wasn't hired on account of their race or sex, they could get a court order that would say, you know, you must hire as a plaintiff. And it also allowed for attorney's fees, which is a little bit unusual. The usual rule in, in the United States is what they call the American rule. And the American rule is that no matter who wins a lawsuit, the parties pay for their own attorney's fees, unless there's a contractual um, agreement that they won't, or unless there's some statute um, that makes an exception. And the Title VII does make an exception. It allows for attorney's fees. But it didn't allow for emotional distress. And, you know, you might ask yourself, like, why? And it's actually pretty interesting, but it will be kind of confusing for non-lawyers, but a piece of cake for lawyers. And neither of you is a lawyer, right? I'm right on that? Yeah, no, that, that that's no, correct. So, so talk to us like non-lawyers. Yeah, it's worth explaining, though. So okay, yeah, I, I will explain it. You know, a lot of people think when they read the Constitution, the Seventh Amendment appears to suggest that you have a right to a jury trial in a civil case that arises out of the common law. And they think, okay, oh boy, I got a right to a a civil jury. But those words common law really mean something there. It refers back to earlier English law where they had two different sets of courts, common law courts and equity courts. Uh, And courts of equity where you went if if you wanted uh, a court order, an injunction, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but you, mm-hmm. we could talk for like days, years about the difference between common law courts and equity courts. But for our purposes, it's good enough to say common law courts awarded money damages when the plaintiff was able to prove the case and they used juries. Equity courts usually gave injunctions, orders, and there were no juries in equity courts. So all the Seventh Amendment means is if you have a cause of action that traditionally would have been brought to a common law court as opposed to an equity court, you get a jury. If you have a cause of action where you are asking for an injunction, again, I'm oversimplifying Mm -hmm. an injunction. Back in 1964, uh, the biggest backers uh, of the Civil Rights Act were very concerned Um, that if jury trials were required in Title VII actions, this was back before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. In many places in the South, African-Americans were not, they were not registered to vote. They couldn't get registered. There were great difficulties. I don't want to suggest that there were no places in the South that were treating the issue fairly, but there were a lot of places where they were not. Members of Congress were saying, we don't want to give rise to a jury trial. And people who had greater doubts about the importance of of Title VII in the first place were also perfectly happy to have limited remedies. So basically, what was worked out was that you could only get lost wages, which they had an interesting legal argument as to why this would be considered something that an equity court could order. We don't need to go into the details on that, but just, you know, the the bottom line um, is that they purposely structured Title VII so that litigants would not have the right to a jury trial. They figured plaintiffs probably wouldn't want it, and they didn't want the the defendant employers to have a jury trial, right? And, you know, those who opposed the bill had no no problem with that. That that was sort of an easy thing. And I think a lot of people were kind of in between saying, you know, we're starting down a new road here. We're heavily regulating the employment relationship. Having limited remedies made sense to them. And so there was no right to a jury trial, but Mm -hmm. there was also no right to 
emotional distress damages. And that's significant here. So, right. So, so, so this regime, as it sort of comes about, it seems to me like basically if something happens, if you're discriminated against under the CRA in 1965, you can get an injunction. You can say, get a court to order that they stop discriminating, but there are, you know, there isn't a lot of pecuniary benefit associated. That's accurate. Yeah, unless you lost wages over it. Right, unless you lost wages. Right. Yeah. Um, so if I, if I were discriminated against, I'm the plaintiff, I file a, a, a complaint after going to the EEOC, and it's been six months since they turned me down for a job. Not only do I want uh, an injunction requiring them to hire me, I also want all the wages that I would have gotten between when I first applied and should have gotten the job and when the court finally gives me the injunction. So, okay. so, so, Congress, so Congress sets this up. There's a separate, for our listeners, a re, you know, the, the main regulatory body enforcing all of this at the federal level is the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They, they set all this up in 1964. What happens with complaints to to the EEOC? You know, what is there a relatively low level? Are people taking advantage of this Title VII right to injunction? Are they not? What's going on? What? How is this actually having an impact? You know, Congress was thinking in 1964 that this was going to be a piece of cake. Um, that there were all these employers that that overtly discriminated on the basis of race or sex, religion or national origin, and that they would sort of wake up and not do it anymore. But they thought this was going to be pretty easy. They wanted to have this administrative agency that, that could deal with the cases really quickly so that they wouldn't simply all go into the federal court. So they figured, okay, we're going to set up this agency, the EEOC, and it will mediate these claims. And it will, you know, cause the employer and the employee to reach an agreement, uh, and will be able to keep most of the cases out of out of the federal courts. But some of them are going to end up going to to the federal courts to be resolved. And you tended to get, you know, at the beginning, cases that really did involve pretty overt discrimination. Remember, mm-hmm. if you picked up a newspaper in 1964, in most, you know, in many states, not all, many states already had a Title VII-like law, Fair Employment Practices Act. But in the South, they tended not to have those. You picked up a newspaper, there would be help wanted, you know, white, help wanted color, help wanted male, help wanted female. And those disappeared really rapidly. And But, you know, in those early days, there were a lot of cases that were quite easy to resolve and were. And, and to just ask one kind of clarifying question, you mentioned the the absence of jury trials. What was the sort of I mean, it may, it may be too long of the thing to go far into it, but what was the, in, in brief, the kind of legal, theoretical, philosophical connection between only issuing injunctions and no jury trial? Or to put it a different way, you know, why were some, why did, why was there this sort of connection between jury trials and the kind of, um, remedies available under common law. Historically, although yeah. why did equity courts only yeah. operate? And then I how did that like apply to this scenario? I think the reason that, that you know, many centuries ago, English courts developed this difference. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. complicated. But if you think just in terms of an injunction, that injunctions, you know, can vary in all sorts of different dimensions. How long should it last? You know, all sorts of differences and injunctions. And it was thought that it really takes a judge to make a decision about what an injunction should say. Whereas when you're just talking about money, the jury can, you know, $1, $2, $3, you know, that you got to draw the line somewhere. 
but it's going to be pretty easy to understand once you do. They're going to order a certain amount of money uh, and the judge will still have the ability to, you know, will still have some discretionary ability after the jury arrives at a verdict. But it's it's one dimensional. It's, you know, how much money is it going to be? Whereas injunctions are multidimensional and you really need a judge uh, who's had some experience on how to do that. And so I think right. that's historically why they were they, they, they happen that way. I think Congress was mostly thinking that we want to avoid the jury trial, and that's why we're going to limit the damages the yeah. way they did. I'm not sure they gave as much attention as would have been merited to the issue before. Another thing that comes to mind, too, is, you know, if, if you're making someone pay damages, in, in a sense, that's more of a that's more of a punishment, right, than just the court saying you can't discriminate anymore. I think in a sense, that's right. I mean, I think in, in general, the sort of civil areas of the law, like tort and breach of contract, mm-hmm. we don't think of it that way. We think of it, it's, it's compensatory and it's not in itself punitive. And therefore, you don't need all the procedural sure. safeguards if you get in a criminal case. But that doesn't mean that you're not right. Of course, it has more of a punitive effect than an injunction. But it hurts to suddenly have to pay somebody a large mm-hmm. sum of money. And so, you know, and that's useful. We want to deter bad behavior in, 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 in right. courts and contract as well. Right. But so, so, to, so, to, so to come back, if that's okay, I don't know if you had an additional question, Aaron, otherwise I was going to go back. No, to no, no, no. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so to come back to sort of where we were in 1965 and sort of going forward for the next couple of decades, you really only have an incentive to seek a remedy under Title Seven, you, there's much pecuniary. There's much pecuniary incentive unless you've lost wages. You don't get a lot of money out of it. There's no damages associated. It's sort of a this this weird artifact of why Congress, how Congress set up the statute. Let's turn the clock forward. 1991. It's you know it's the 90s. We we defeated the Soviet Union. Everything's great. 1991. H.W. signs the Civil Rights Act of 1991 after vetoing the one from the previous year. What is the 1991 Civil Rights Act? Why does it matter? What does it do? Give us sort of the the big picture. Okay. The big picture is too big for one one podcast because it did a lot of things. Sure. Lots of little sections. But the part that we're concerned about today is that it allowed for money damages for emotional distress. It also allowed for punitive damages. They actually put caps on it. They negotiated a cap. So it, it can't go up into the zillions. Nevertheless, there are now these money damages available. A plaintiff who can say, not only did I, I you know, get discriminated against, but it really distressed me. That person now has a cause of action, even if they didn't lose mm-hmm. any wages, and even if they don't want the job. You know, I found a different job. They now can bring an action, and they're more likely to. I want to turn back the clock for a second and, 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 and say something about um, harassment causes of action. You know, mm-hmm. back in... You can, sorry, just very briefly, can you define cause of action for our listeners? Sure. A cause of action, all I'm talking about there is um, when you want to sue, you have to have a legal theory as to why you're entitled to to some remedy. So you go into court and you might have causes of action would include things like defamation. And, and you can mm-hmm. sue for defamation. You can sue for breach of contract. You can sue for negligence that causes a, a personal injury. But a cause of action under Title VII is a cause of action for discrimination on the basis of race, color, um, sex, religion, or national origin. And you know, if you read Title VII, not only in 1964, but today as well, the word harassment doesn't appear there. There's nothing that says you can't harass. But 
you know, if you think about it, there has to be some way um, in which a, a plaintiff discriminated against, not because they were hired, but because they were harassed to the point where they felt like they had to leave the job. Very slowly, the court started to recognize that sometimes, sometimes it's, it's necessary to provide a remedy for somebody who has been harassed. And, you know, imagine a case where uh, an employer who really wants to discriminate on the basis of race, but they figure, okay, no, we got to hire this person because they're clearly qualified, but let's say they're African-American. And so the employer that wants to discriminate says, okay, we'll hire them, but then we'll all dress up in KKK robes and start screaming at them all the time. And like, no, I mean, that, that's got to be a violation of Title VII too. And so, you know, the new African-American employee finally says, I got to get out of here. And that person should be able to sue, obviously. And the question is, well, how far do you want to take that? And the courts never really defined harassment in any way other than a very vague way. And that's important. So running, coming up to the 1991 Act, they'd started including the notion that sexual harassment can be a violation mm -hmm. of Title VII. Uh, it was already clear from earlier cases that racial harassment can be a violation of Title VII, but they never really defined it very well. And it didn't matter that they didn't define it that well back in the day when you had to show lost wages, because it's going to take serious harassment for somebody to, to lose wages over it, as opposed to it was really annoying. Mm. It's going to be a case where either they were fired for not going along with the harassment, or they felt, I got to get out of here, I got to leave. And they leave even though they don't have a new job uh, lined up because it's just so horrible. So the cases that tended to be filed early on tended to be cases where the harassment was very serious. But starting in 1991, it didn't have to be that serious. It could even be a case where a person was fired for a reason that had nothing to do with race, sex, religion, uh, or national origin. Very clear that they were fired for good reason, or at least not for a reason that would be illegal under Title VII. And they can say, oh, okay, I just got fired. I'm feeling pretty desperate. Now that I think about it, I remember that I was, I was harassed back, you know, three years ago. And they might then be able to bring an action for harassment and the emotional distress that's connected to that, even though they didn't lose any wages over it. So as soon as Title as soon as Title Seven was amended in 1991, the number of harassment cases that got brought before the EEOC, and you've got to go to the EEOC first if you go through you want to go through the federal courts, it just shot up, it skyrocketed. So, so, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, it's not just the 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 sort of vaguely defined harassment that emerges between 1964 and 1991 isn't really that relevant so long as damages are limited to lost wages. It's only when you should be able to recover emotional damages and other forms of recompense that there's suddenly a pecuniary incentive to say, I, th there was harassment, I was harassed. And so when we talk about harassment, one of the things you note is that you know, harassment doesn't necessarily need to be as blatant as everyone's going to dress up in clan robes. What, right. what does harassment mean concretely as a legal matter? Oh, boy, that's, you know, that's the problem that harassment is defined so vaguely, you know, creation of a hostile environment. You know, how bad does it have to be? And, you know, that's turned out to be in the eye of the beholder, whereas right. when you had to have lost wages, you know, it was going to be something that was fairly serious. But now that vague definition, and even more important, 
the fact that the definition is cumulative. So, you know, what happens here is that if you're an employer and you're told, well, you know, we don't really have a clear definition of what's bad enough to be a hostile environment. You know, the the courts throw around words like, well, it has to be abusive. It has to be, you know, it has to be, has to be pretty bad. But they never really say, you know, for example, this wouldn't be enough and and, and such. And, And because it can be cumulative, if you've got 15 people in your office and they're not talking to each other about what they say. They, every little thing that can add up to a hostile environment. So, you know, telling somebody, you know, Miss Snodgrass, you're looking lovely today. Not, that's not harmful. I mean, that's, you know, that's yeah. pretty, pretty ordinary. At least it was ordinary up until the last couple of decades. You know, telling somebody that, you know, they've got a nice dress, their hair looks nice. That can be part of, it's not going to be enough by itself, but it can add up. Somebody tells a dirty joke, somebody else compliments someone on, on their appearance. Somebody else has a picture of, you know, their wife in a bikini on their desk. All sorts of little things that you wouldn't think of as a very big deal. The employer now has to start worrying about these uh, because once the 19, 1991 Act passes, Title VII it has in some sense become a super cause of action. It has the remedies available for it are broader than for most. Because I said, you know, not only can you get lost wages, you can also get attorney's fees, and that's rare. That's mm-hmm. something you don't run across in most causes of action. And I think they thought it would be a useful thing because they expected so many of the cases to be kind of small potatoes. To, to throw in uh, attorney's fees, because that will mean that the smaller cases, and they're small potatoes in terms of, of the, the, the monetary value, but they're very important to the plaintiff, obviously. Mm. We wanted individuals to be able to bring those cases in clear cases of race or sex discrimination. So they throw in attorney's fees. And I think it was, that was probably a good idea at the time. But when you then add emotional stress, now you've got Title Seven as having broader remedies than just about any other kind of lawsuit that you could run across. And the cumulative side of it, the employer's incentive is to bring in somebody to train the employees and say, look, don't don't make jokes. Don't compliment people on, on their appearance. Don't do anything that might be seen as sexually or racially harassing that might be insensitive. Um, yeah, I, I, that had a huge effect. Right. I mean, and I, you know, I think this is happening within the, you know, it's it's sort of at the start of what we now sort of think about as the as the first PC wars, um, the first political correctness wars. And, you know, <laughs> to, to date ourselves, Aaron and I were, that was negative three and he was negative five in 1991. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, I did. This, I was already a law professor. <laughs> but so, you know, we, this is almost history that us and I think many of our listeners have to recover post hoc. But, you know, it's the this sort of minor change in the CRA is happening in the context of disputes over sexual harassment during Clarence Thomas's hearings to be appointed through court. Catherine McKinnon, who's sort of the mother of modern feminist, one of the mothers of modern feminist legal theory, is sort of writing her books in this period, making her sort of public arguments at the pervasiveness of sexual harassment. But so I guess what, what I want to ask is, what did you see as the impact on the culture 
of this change to CRA in the 90s. And we'll talk about we'll talk about sort of the present in a second. But how does this mm-hmm. inform training, the experience of being in the workplace? Yeah, you know, employers panicked in 1991. You know, if you go back and look at some of the sort of, you know, legal advice given to employers in, in sort of newsletters and such, you know, you'll see lawyers telling employers, you're going to have to be really careful. You're really, really going to have to do something here. And employers started hiring businesses that specialize in training. And most of the training focused on sexual harassment because that was a, a bigger cultural change. So like you actually, you know, should not compliment people on their appearance. You should be very careful. You should not have um, issues of, of a playboy hanging around your office and things of that sort. It's interesting. If you look at the circulation of some of those magazines, they started plummeting around the, the, that, that period. Uh, um, and, you know, all these organizations, businesses, and I think you got to call them businesses because they are and they behave like businesses. They want to, they want more business. They train people to avoid saying the wrong thing. And so people in your age group who were just puppies or even negative puppies at the time, you know, have had this around all your lives. But people in my age group, yeah, you know, we made it, you know, I started being employed in the 1980s and there was nothing like this, but it became right. ubiquitous that any sort of large employer would have training and zero tolerance was often the rule. They were, right. the trainers would often say, look, you know, the employers are not going to tolerate any of this. And when they meant any of it, they mean anything that can contribute to a hostile environment, even though right. by itself, it might be considered like nothing. And back in those days, the comedians made fun of it. You know, right. it was still, there, there were people like in my age group who were comedians and they, they would make fun of, of, of these trainers. But after a while, it starts to sink in. And at this point, it has sunk very deeply into yeah. the culture. You know, people are used to thinking that right. culture affects law, but law affects culture too. So, so one one possible example of that I want to hone in on is the the concept of microaggressions, which obviously I think it was coined actually in the 1970s, but it didn't really come into its own until more recently. And it occurs to me that in many ways, it seems like the 1991 CRA basically wrote the equivalent of microaggressions into law. They just didn't call it that, right? Because the premise of the term is that small things can be forms of aggression and be almost harmful. And the 1991 law was effectively saying, yeah, small things can be uh, in conjunction with other things can add up to a kind of harm and a violation of someone's civil rights and thus you know and that harm can be you know is is so significant that it ought to be subject to to damages and legal remedies so so i mean this is sort of a broader question just to what extent do you think the discrete concepts kind of constitutive of wokeness can be traced back to sort of the, the emerging legal regime that, that the 1991 law inaugurated. Critical race theory is only taught in law schools. <laughs> yeah, I think the 1991 Act basically, you know, made it so microaggressions was going to be a big thing. You know, and in fairness, you were saying that it writes it into the law, but I would like, you know, modify that a little bit. But the members of Congress weren't thinking of this at all. Right. 
all they were thinking was, let's make money damages available, you know, for emotional distress, let's make punitive damages available, because we're not afraid of jury trials anymore. We think juries will be, they will be diverse, they will treat people, you know, fairly and and Plaintiff's bar wanted to be able to be before juries, but they really didn't think about how this would affect, you know, how employers behave because they weren't thinking, okay, we've already got attorney's fees. So this is making this especially, you know, especially special um, cause of action. They weren't thinking that harassment is defined vaguely. They weren't thinking that it's defined cumulatively. And had they been thinking, they would have realized, I think, that this is not going to end well. This is going to lead to concepts right. like microaggressions being treated, you know, as if that's a that's a concept that we all should get behind right. and say, you know, even the smallest little statement that might be taken badly, we need to take deeply seriously. And you're right that that term was actually coined earlier but it wasn't on, on the tip of everybody's tongue the way it is now. And part of it is sort of the business aspect of this. Yeah. All these training organizations, they want to be able to come back every year and train train the, the employer's employees next year. And that means they have to right. come up with new stuff. Right. Um, and like they have to be able to say, look, we've got special expertise. This isn't just a matter of using common sense. We know about things that shouldn't be said that your employees don't know about, even if they are, you know, even if they have, you know, doing the right thing at heart. We want to be able to explain to them how there are all sorts right. of things that they might think of as innocuous, but in fact, right. are very hurtful. Um, well, and, and I was going to say, so, I mean, I think another key aspect of this is you mentioned that the definition of harassment, I mean, it, it, courts kind of improvised as they went along. There was not a very clear sense of what actually counted as harassment. And and so could you maybe talk a bit more about the degree to which some of these sort of entrepreneurial HR specialists end up effectively almost creating themselves a definition of harassment that's then incorporated into law? Like we think about, we often think that, you know, well, the law hands down the definition, but in this is a case, I think, where law kind of created a set of constituencies that then in turn helped to kind of fill out the content of law. Can you talk a bit about how that worked? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as I said, the number of harassment cases skyrockets in the early 90s. Uh, but you wouldn't, you know, if you look at cases that actually get litigated, it's not an overwhelming number because everything mm-hmm. gets headed off before it gets that far. You know, we have within each significant employer, there will be not only, you know, someone who's concerned there's going to be a, an HR office that is concerned with making sure that these things get nipped in the bud. And again, we mm-hmm. get back to the cumulative side of it. They want to make sure that if somebody says something that's not likely to be considered by a court to be enough, they're nevertheless going to stop it from even being, you know, we're not going to get 1% of the way here. We're, we're, going to, we're going to head off everything before. And these HR offices have grown and grown and grown. Again, you know, back in the day, they used to call it the personnel office. And they would do very minor things. They would make sure that the paychecks get distributed at the right time. Uh, and now HR offices are huge. And, you know, if you take one of these training courses and they come in different forms these days, I've noticed that the training that I have to take as a law professor, the training, and I, I do it over the computer these days, but the training is always, you know, if this happens, call HR. It's always like, leave it to HR to decide. Right. 
and like, whoa, it's like it gets larger and larger and more controlling and more controlling over time. And it's had a profound effect. One, one, one topic that you alluded to and I want to touch on briefly, one of, the, one of the components of the law is this prohibition on retaliation. It's this idea that you're not allowed to, you know, if, some, if somebody brings harassment complaint, and, you know, on the one hand, that makes total sense ex ante to me. You don't want to allow employers to go after employees. On the other hand, it seems like you can create perverse incentives for it induces this kind of zero tolerance environment where because there's nothing you can do when somebody brings a complaint, you have to be really deterred to any possible complaint situation. Is that tell us more about about that particular phenomenon? Yeah, I think you, your instinct is right. At first, you think, well, that's got to be right. You shouldn't be able to retaliate against someone who makes a Title VII complaint. I mean, imagine again. Let's go back to to to, to the early days, and you know, someone someone is discriminated against on the basis of race. They they don't get a promotion they should have gotten. That's very clear that it has to do with their race. They make a, a Title VII complaint to the EEOC. The EEOC, you know doesn't do anything, they sue. And at that point, the employer says, you know, yeah, you know, it may be true that we didn't uh, promote this person because of their race, but we wouldn't think of promoting somebody that sues us. That would be terrible. You know, you cannot, you can't run Title VII if people who make complaints Mm -hmm. uh, can be retaliated against. So it makes perfect sense that the courts early on said, no, retaliation is impermissible under Title VII. But think about how that plays out in the harassment context, where anybody who makes a complaint has to be treated, you know, with kid gloves. Nobody is is willing to say to that person, that's idiotic. You know, you are complaining about something and you really should apologize to the person that you are complaining about. They obviously didn't make any harm. Instead, it's, oh, we take everything very seriously. And alas, I've seen some of these where employers take complaints way too seriously, thus encouraging people to feel like, yeah, you know, I I should regard these microaggressions as serious aggression. And it makes things worse instead of better. And I don't think there's an easy solution to that. It's just a fact that helps fuel the wokeness that we see today. Right. Well, well, so I think this gets at a kind of deeper question, which is, Obviously, the 1991 law changed some concrete things that made the problem worse. But a lot of what you're describing actually was baked into the 64 law, the no retaliation stuff. The fact there already, you say, was this kind of asymmetry where Title VII claims were somewhat privileged. And of course, you know, as this has been talked about a lot, but the, the law kind of arguably had the effect of kind of constructing a a set of identity constituencies and a a kind of identity-based coalition, you know, around sort of oriented towards kind of further elaborating and entrenching civil rights into the culture. And so I guess the the, the question is, to, to what extent do you think the 91 Act was kind of just a contingent update that easily could have gone the other way? And to what extent do you think it was kind of just the logical conclusion of of the sociological processes that the initial act unleashed, you know, and sort of what are the implications of that? Yeah, the political story in 1991 is pretty interesting. I mean, basically, the 1991 act brings together a lot of smaller issues 
that were bubbling up. The Supreme Court had made several decisions that supporters of, you know, more aggressive Title VII actions were not happy with. And it's a hodgepodge. There are a number of things here. And as you mentioned, President Bush, H.W. Bush, vetoed the first version, which was in 1990. And from what I have been able to gather, the lawyers in the White House Counsel's Office fully understood that some of this act was going to be bad news. They were especially concerned with the disparate impact side of it, which is not what we're talking about right now. And I think did not give enough attention to the part of the act that we're talking about, the expansion of remedies. But they were very strong on making sure that the bill was 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 not going to cause problems. But at some point, the political people at the White House said, lay off. The president has to sign this. It it's, has to be signed. We have to have a bill. Uh, and then the opposition collapsed at that point. So it looks to me that it was not inevitable because there was a lot of opposition, particularly from people who understood the institutional side of this and could think in terms of, wait, how, mm-hmm. what is the effect that this is going to have? I wish they'd spent more time thinking about the remedy side of it. I teach remedies. And so that's a course that it's, it's an unpopular course among law students. It's usually one of the last courses they take before they get out of law school. And like, they're tired. They're, I don't want to say too many bad things about the remedies course, but all of law school is designed for students to think about the substantive law. Is there liability or is there not liability? And outside a contracts class where they do talk a lot about, well, you know, what would be the, what should be ordered if we decide that there is liability for breach contract, you know, what should the winning side, the plaintiff, right. have? but in all the other courses, they just, they don't spend any time thinking about how remedies affect things. And like, guess what, yeah. gentlemen, remedies matter, how the law will be interpreted. <laughs> um, and they, if you care about how the, the law is actually going to develop, you got to think about, you know, how serious is the remedy, you know, are we going to like, blast the, the defendant to kingdom come, uh, or are we just going to, you know, slightly touch him on, 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 on the, the head? It matters. It matters. And looking at the history of this, I think there was a chance to come up with a better bill. And I think there were lawyers who tried very hard to do that, but politics took over. Yeah. So let me sort of take that as a natural segue to what I guess is probably our, our last question before we wrap up. Which is okay. So, so what do we do? Let's imagine that you know Gil Harriet is appointed Emperor of the United States, and she gets to rewrite the laws. What is the? How do you fix this problem? How do you fix these perverse incentives? Oh my! <laughs> I'm sure this would not be the first thing you do as Emperor, but like you know, maybe item sixty three. <laughs> okay. Well, this is a hard one. Are, are you saying I really have the ability to do whatever I want? Let's say that there are two versions. One is, how would you ideally fix it? And the other one is, is there a fix that exists within the realm of political possibility under some constraints, right? If sympathetic, if a a more sympathetic House and Senate exist in two years or next year at the end of this year, what could they do? But then also it would be the ideal fix. Okay, let me start with the ideal fix. I think that probably the best thing to do, and this is just off the top of my head, so I could change my mind in 10 seconds. But I think probably the best thing that could have been done is to take harassment out of Title VII and create a different body of law for that. And the exception would be for harassment that amounts to a constructive termination. 
So remember my first hypothetical with the KKK ropes and such, you know, that's a constructive termination. They are trying to get rid of that person and that should be treated under Title VII and should have broad remedies. But that's not most of harassment. You know, that's not most of these cases are not, you know, we're trying to get rid of this person. And so that probably should have been treated under a, a different law with more limited remedies. You know, the notion that you're unhappy with your job, but, you know, they're not nice to me. There are all sorts of ways in which people can be not nice to you. Job. And, you know, why should it even be connected to to race, sex, um, religion, uh, and national origin? You know, let's say somebody just doesn't like people who wear plaid shirts and they treat you extremely badly for that. You know, do you lose wages over it? It's got to be really bad before before something you know, should be treated as something that should be in the federal courts. People have to learn to get along with each other and they have to let, you know, the, the free market take over to some extent so that we're not looking at, at, at things out of context and determining that a joke that misfires is somehow something worthy of a federal lawsuit. How many jokes have we all told that didn't quite go over? How many times have we been misunderstood uh, by somebody who thinks that we're, we're trying to do something that they won't like when that's not what we're trying to do at all. We need to get back to a world in which human relations are mainly something that people manage on their own. But do you have thoughts on, I guess, what, what a practical solution might look like? If there is one, maybe there isn't, maybe we're opposed. I mean, the, the world is not going to want to suggest that, that harassment should never be something that becomes a lawsuit. And I, I agree with them on that. There are certainly harassments that need to be addressed in courts. For example, the quid pro quo sort of sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh boy, I mean, should we make it illegal uh, for an employer to demand sex as part of, uh, of the job? Yes, we should. We need a remedy for that. But I think we want to define these things a bit more carefully. And I think if we had defined them in a statute, we'd be doing a little better than we're doing now. The very broad and vague definition of sexual harassment yeah. has been a problem. We need to define it more carefully so that we can exclude cases that are really, you know, not significant enough to have employers want to panic over them. I mean, do you think that it would be possible to get any sort of bipartisan buy-in to a more restrained and plausible definition of harassment? Not like, like soon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what I figured. Um, yeah. No. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, because as, as we say, you know, the absence of such a definition serves the interests of kind of entrenched, you know, lobbies. Think of all the, the, right. the, the businesses that are providing training. Think of all the people that work for HR offices. You know, and it's natural if you're working for the HR office and you're the one that's making the decision about who needs to be reprimanded and who doesn't. Right. You figure, you know, I'm doing a good job. And that's natural for people to think. We all have a tendency to think that way. I don't think this is going to be an easily solved problem. One, well, this is not the best way to solve this problem, but like inflation, because these these damages have caps on them. If we get runaway inflation, that's going to make employers less concerned about <laughs> damages, but let's not wish that on the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, 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 
I'm now imagining some of the more uh, hardcore reactionary common good type conservatives saying, oh, well, maybe inflation is good. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> probably not, not the pitch good. you want to go with. I'm yeah, not excited for it. no, not the best argument. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, do you want to, I guess, move in, offer your closing, your thoughts, your, your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm left even more persuaded. I think that various aspects of the civil rights uh, bureaucracy have have played a causative role in the construction of wokeness. I'm also, I think, left because uh, in part because I didn't know this history, more convinced that there are some limits to the kind of deterministic story that people like, for example, Christopher Caldwell like to tell, in which once we pass the '64 Act, basically America's fate was sealed and woke tyranny was all but assured. I mean, when you see all the kind of contingencies um, and fights that led into this bill and how much later this, the 1991 act was from the 64 act, it does seem to me that it's possible to acknowledge that civil rights law played a big role in wokeness without kind of, you know, telling this very dark and deterministic story that, you know, the moment we tried to sort of you know, regulate the employee-employer relationship, we were all doomed. But, you know, I'm also left kind of pessimistic because, as you say, I just think the incentive structures to fix this problem aren't really there. Charles? My conclusion is almost exactly the opposite. Um, oh, really? A, a, well, A, insofar as, you know, I've made the argument past and sort of reiterates that we've reiterated that argument, I think, that sort of many of the excesses of contemporary culture are a function of vagueness in the civil rights regime. That the the, the the sort of bottle uh, the sort of capsule explanation yes. I've given is that the CRA is written to resolve a very specific problem, which is America's legacy of racism towards Black people, and then we build all of these vagaries into it, and those vagaries create space for all sorts of weird and unintended side effects. And it seems like the same thing happens in the history of harassment. The same things happening for these sort of totally contingent reasons. Right. How we decide who gets what damages. So you know, I think I think. It's, you know, there's, there's almost like a Maoist tightening contradictions thing here that what we are seeing playing out is is sort of the these ambiguities and contradictions intrinsic to the regime. On the other hand, I am, you know, coming from this conversation after sort of Gail's last response is, so if, if harassment is statutorily defined, there's a big opening to define harassment statutorily. Right. That, that is a thing that. That is the thing Congress can do. That is a thing that a Republican-controlled White House can do or, you know, whoever controlled White House can do. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting avenue of an, an interesting concept to explore yeah. after this. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, yeah, I was just, I would just say in response. I mean, I, I agree, it's an interesting concept, and and maybe if you got a big enough Republican majority, and they weren't afraid, you know, of the backlash, they could do it. I'm skeptical that such a majority would be comprised of the kind of politicians competent enough and interested in ideas enough to actually do something useful just based on recent history. We'll see. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, the other thing I would say, Charles, is no, I mean, I, I do agree with you that the vagueness kind of is where th there is kind of an inner logic that's going to push us towards more and more stuff like this. But I mean, I guess my point is just, sure, there's vagueness, but the vagueness didn't really make as big a difference until this pecuniary incentive came into being. And it's not clear to me the degree to which the vagueness itself kind of generated the pecuniary incentive. I mean, I think there, there was a both, little more. Both, both matter. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I think we're actually not that yeah. far away from each okay. other. I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
Yale, do you have any kind of last closing thoughts before we do our recommendations? All I can say is good luck. If you expect Republican member, members of Congress to be helpful here, I've tried, I've really tried on other issues, not on this one. And you get a deer in the headlights look really quickly, but it's like, oh my gosh, don't make me do anything about what I consider, you know, clear problems in the law. Here's fear and doubt. Fair. You know, maybe that will change, <laughs> but I'm not optimistic. I will. Okay. I'll be optimistic for the three of us. Why don't we, why don't we give our listeners a few recommendations? Aaron, do you want to start us out? Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking in many ways about why it is that officially kind of independent, discrete, unrelated institutions all seem to converge on the same kinds of memes and messages and policies, namely that they're all subject to this kind of asymmetric legal regime that encourage the, encourages zero tolerance policies around issues of, of identity and harassment. That phenomenon of kind of all these officially independent, unrelated institutions converging has been called the cathedral by one Curtis Yarvin, who is a very reactionary blogger who just was profiled in Tablet by Jake Siegel. And I commend the profile to you because I think it does a good job of probing the sources of Yarvin's appeal and kind of the appeal of this sort of empirical insight about how all of our institutions work. But it also does a good job, I think, of illustrating the the dark side of the ideology that tends to grow out of that insight. And, you know, I always like to sort of remind people that as bad as all of these problems are, it is very easy to take them and kind of use them as a justification for some pretty dark and undemocratic and illiberal stuff. And I think Jake is probably the first... He's, he's the first one to write a piece addressing Yarvin that I think both treats him with kind of the sympathy and seriousness he deserves, but also puts his finger on kind of what about this neo-reactionary movement can be so disturbing. Fair. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, for change, I'm going to be the lighthearted pop culture one. My recommendation this week, my wife and I finally started, started watching together the third season of American Crime Story, Ryan Murphy's show about historical great crimes broadly construed. This one's about the Bill Clinton impeachment. It's it's on Hulu now. The the season finished, so you can watch it all. That's I don't pay for television because I'm a millennial, so I watch it on streaming again because I'm a millennial. But it's it's you know we're talking about the '90s, talking about the cultural moment of the '90s, and nothing is more important as a cultural moment to disputes about sexual harassment, power, politics. Everything that we are engaging with, nothing's more important than Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, which is what it's about. So I, I, I commend it to our listeners if they haven't already seen it. Gail, do you have any recommendations from your own work, from other people's work, things that our listeners should check out? I have a recommendation for, for members of Congress and for, for, for lawyers generally, and that is I'm the remedies professor. Please pay attention when you make remedies and think a little bit more carefully uh, about what direction you're pushing the law, because when you push the law, you're going to be pushing the culture yeah. too. 
I will commend that to any members of Congress who are listening. We can hope. Um, that would be nice. Maybe, maybe we might get some. You never know. That, I believe, is all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Gail, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, harassment claims, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. With that in mind, I have been Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 